0: Good uh, afternoon. I'm Tim. I'm a first year physics student. I'm going to be reading from Acts, which you will find on the sheets. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others uh, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way to the Bible church, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, to take from them a people for his name. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city um, those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue.
1: conflict is really unpleasant. And the current leadership battle in our government is a testament just to how sad it is, isn't it? There's all this talk about another leadership spill soon that is inevitable, and what's sad is that it really seems inevitable. The conflict is particularly unpleasant when Christians disagree, when Christian leaders disagree, in churches or in ministries. That's just incredibly sad. And we who are willing to call ourselves Christians feel particularly ashamed or disappointed when our fellow brother, brothers and sisters seem to disagree. It just seems so wrong and so hypocritical and so unloving. Now, if it's your first time here with us or first time in a long time, we're working through a book of the Bible called Acts. And we're doing, though, that chapter by chapter. And today we arrive at chapter 15 where Christian leaders are in conflict. And before I explore that with you, and given that it is the Word of God, I'm going to ask God to help me to teach it faithfully, and for us to respond in a manner that truly is appropriate, given the sensitivity of the subject. So will you please pray with me? We thank you, dear Father, that we can meet at this lunchtime to hear your voice from Acts chapter 15. We pray that in your mercy you'll help us to respond In a manner that is truly pleasing to you. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. One friend of mine suggests that reading the book of Acts is like watching the effects of an earthquake. Although by earthquake, he's not referring to conflict, rather, by earthquake, he's referring to the death and resurrection of Jesus. As the epicenter of the earthquake. And when the earthquake happens, as it were, that is when Jesus died and rose again, well the shock waves expand in ever-increasing circles to cover the whole earth, driven by the Holy Spirit, as it were. And the shock waves in the book of Acts revolve around this particular big idea that I've been suggesting to you all through these talks. That is in God's timing, Jesus will establish his rule from heaven as king over all the nations. In God's timing, Jesus will establish his rule from heaven as king over all the nations. And the ever-increasing circles of the shockwaves included the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of Jesus in chapter 2 upon his people, And then the spread of the gospel to Jewish people in chapters 3 to 6 in particular. Then the spread of the gospel to Gentiles, that is to non-Jews, the nations, from kind of chapter 7 onwards. And then the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas that we saw in the last two weeks in chapters 13 and 14. They're the kind of ripples the circles of the shockwaves as it keeps on going out from Jerusalem in the first instance and today we come to the major shockwave in chapter 15 this crucial moment a historical moment in the global movement of the gospel and this shockwave lies between the first missionary journey of the apostle Paul and the second missionary journey of the apostle Paul it's right in between, smack bang, in between these two missionary journeys. Indeed, it is the fruit of the first missionary journey that causes this crisis, this watershed moment. You recall on the map from last couple of weeks, we saw how Paul, together with Barnabas, went from Antioch down through Cyprus, then up to Antioch, the other Antioch, and down to Iconium, through to Derby, and then looped back again and went back to Antioch, Right? So that was the first missionary journey. And on the way, he met Jews. He always went to the synagogue first, where there was a synagogue. And then after that, if he was uh, deposed in some sense, that is, he was actually uh, resisted, he would go to the Gentiles, the nations. And so many of the Gentiles, the nations, the non-Jewish people, why, became Christians? Now, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch declaring how God had opened the door of faith to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, when the Jewish leaders had rejected them. Now that's what they're doing. They're reporting all this good news when they come back to the church at Antioch. And that's where we begin our passage here in verse 1 of chapter 15. So have a look there at the small number 1, the very first sentence as we come to this portion. It says, But some men came down from Judea, And were teaching the brothers, in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved. In other words, it's necessary. It's a necessary prerequisite to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's what these men were teaching. Now, if you are new to the Bible, this really sounds odd, doesn't it? I mean, why would they say that circumcision is necessary to be saved? Why is it so important to the Jews? Well, because the Jews rightly understood that circumcision was a command of God. It was a law of God. A law that physically distinguished God's people from all the nations. From all the Gentiles. That was the law that distinguished them. But, you might ask, if you're going to have a distinguishing mark between one group of people and another group of people, why down there? I mean, why not somewhere else? Why not have a cool tattoo instead? Why not have a a hoodie that distinguishes you from the rest of the university? Jesus is why. Why not do that? Why go for circumcision? I mean, it's a little, you know, painful. Well, to cut a long story short, <laughs> I should have used the word <laughs>
2: <hard>. <laughs> It was because
1: circumcision distinguished those who relied on their own ability to create descendants, rather to trust God's promises to create descendants. Do you get the idea? As such, it was a good law that rightly pointed to the sovereign faithfulness of God under what was known as the Old Covenant. However, when these men came from Judea saying that Gentile converts, non-Jewish converts, must be circumcised in order to be saved, well, Paul disagreed. In fact, he says there, look at the small number 2. Indeed, it's very small, isn't there? Verse 2 says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That is, they had such a sharp disagreement, a sharp dispute, that they were asked to raise the matter with the bigwigs in with the apostles in Jerusalem. It's like taking them out to the high court, as it were, in their eyes. And when they get to Jerusalem, look what happens. Look at the small number 4, verse 4. We read these. When they came to Jerusalem, that's Paul and Barnabas. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, we'll pause there, much debate. See, here are Christian leaders debating. Big time. They're in conflict big time. Now, I don't know what you think of conflict. I don't like it. My (coughs) personality just shies away from it. And I suspect most of you would be like that. In fact, I'd be really worried if you enjoyed conflict. I'd be wondering whether you had a personality disorder of some kind, if you really enjoyed conflict. But here are Christian leaders in huge debate. And although it's the Apostles and Elders debating, it's quite possible that the whole Jerusalem church was watching them. And I wonder if the Christians watching this would have felt particularly saddened or ashamed or disappointed. I don't know. It doesn't actually tell us. But remember, what is the key issue here? The key issue is this. Do Gentile Christians non-Jewish Christians have to obey the law of Moses, that is, circumcision, in order to be saved? Do Gentile Christians have to obey the law of Moses, especially circumcision, in order to be saved? That's the key issue. Is obeying the law a necessary prerequisite to be saved? A necessary prerequisite to become a Christian? Do you have to do something... In order to be saved. That's the issue, right? That's the issue. Now Peter stands up and he addresses the issue in verse 7. Verse 7, the small number 7 there. It says, And after there'd been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. And believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. Now, what's He saying? He's saying the gift of the Holy Spirit was a witness to the Gentiles themselves that they were accepted by God. In fact, He cleansed their hearts by faith. That is, he cleansed their hearts because he enabled them to trust the promises of the gospel and not because they obeyed the law. Now, Peter's speech can be distilled to this key truth. The key issue, do Gentile Christians have to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved? Here's the key truth. No. No. We are saved by trusting the news of the Lord Jesus and not by obeying the law. That's the key truth. We are saved by trusting the news of the Lord Jesus and not by obeying the law. The epicenter of the earthquake is that Jesus died the death that you and I deserve and rose from the dead to be the Lord of heaven and earth. And his offer... To forgive us is all of grace. It's undeserved generosity. Grace is an attitude of God. It's not a substance that falls out of heaven. It's an attitude of God. It's the generosity of God poured out upon us that we don't deserve at all. And if we trust Jesus alone to be our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. We don't need to do anything to be saved because Jesus has done it all. He's paid it all. Jesus has done everything. That's the difference between the gospel of Jesus and the law of Moses. That's the difference between the gospel of Jesus and the law of any religion I put to you. The momentous news of Jesus is that he has done everything to save us as Lord. But every other religion says you must do something in order to be saved. Like doing good deeds, whether it's making a trip to a major city, or whether it's praying X times a day, or whether it's performing some kind of ritual, right? Doing good deeds does not save you. Helping people or giving money to the poor, those deeds, doing them, does not save you. Doing religious deeds does not save you. Even in Christian circles, you know, being baptised doesn't make you a Christian any more than having a bath makes you an Olympic swimmer. It doesn't. Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian any more than taking McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Although you should ponder that one for a moment. But it's not true. (laughs) You don't become a hamburger by... going. You don't become a Christian by taking communion. You don't become a Christian by doing these religious deeds. Only trusting what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection saves us. So let me ask you, who or what do you trust to be saved, ultimately? Is it your deeds? Do you feel as if I'm not saved unless I've done these things, whatever they are? whether it's a religious ritual of some kind or whether it's good deeds of some kind. No, God is willing to forgive anything if you've done, if you've asked for that forgiveness. Well, where then is the place of deeds? Does that mean that if I'm forgiven, I can do anything I want? No, no, not at all. Because if I am forgiven, if I'm saved, then I will want to live out a saved life. So I live out a saved life with joy and I I'm totally sad if I do the wrong thing before God, if I'm saved. But it's not what saves me. Sorry, the deed is not what saves me. What saves me is what Jesus has done. You see, it's so clear that we need to ask ourselves. That's the key truth of Acts chapter fifteen. We are saved by trusting the news of the Lord Jesus and not by obeying the law, not by any deeds whatsoever. Your, your identity is based on who Jesus is and what he's done for you, not on what you do. Not on your results, not on your success, not on your reputation, not on anything but on who Jesus is. So don't make the law of Moses, especially circumcision, an unbearable burden to be saved. That's what he goes on to say because that's a false gospel. Look at the small number 10 and 11 there verse 10 and 11, what Peter goes on saying. say, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, right? There's no distinction. This is the case for both Jew and Gentile. In fact, he said it in the past, look at Acts 13, when we were looking back there, it says, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. But the law of Moses doesn't free us from the penalty and power of sin. Not obeying the law of Moses, not obeying the law of any other religion, frees us from the penalty and power of sin. Only Jesus does, through what He did in his life, death, and resurrection. There's a fellow by the name of Martin Luther who is famously seen as the first great reformer who protested against this idea that you had to be saved by what you do. He protested again. So he began the so-called Protestant movement. He says this, The distinction between... Law and gospel must be observed all the more when the law wants to force me to abandon Christ and his gospel. In that emergency, I must abandon the law and say, Dear law, if I've not done the works I should have done, do them yourself. I will not, for your sake, allow myself to be plagued to death, taken captive, and kept under your thraldom. Isn't that a great word? thraldom, which means bondage. Kept under your bondage. And thus forget the gospel. If like a housebreaker, you want to climb in where you do not belong, causing me to lose what has been given me, I would rather not know you at all than abandon my gift. You see, he really understood it, didn't he? Now, does that mean that the law is bad? No, 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 the law is good. It's a question of how you understand the law. If you understand the law as something that you must do to be saved that it's a housebreaker. Isn't that a lovely way of understanding it? It's a housebreaker if you understand it wrongly. Right? Trying to obey the law in order to be saved is an unbearable bondage. And it's a false gospel. And it's completely unbearable. There is nothing I can do to be saved. I just you know, feel like I've got to do everything so that I'm seen to be right. No, no. Trusting the gracious promise of Jesus to be saved That's the unbelievable gift of the true gospel that we must not abandon. So, when Peter concluded his sermon, as it were, it was a victory for truth against the threat of a false gospel. And it had to come through conflict, it had to come through debate. And if, like me, you don't like debate, we need to hear that at some point it's important. But it's a victory for truth that must be spoken in love. So your manner of debate is just as important as the debate, if it ever comes up. But although the threat of the false gospel was denied, there was still, as you'll see in your outlines, the threat of fractured fellowship. There was a threat of the false gospel, but it was denied, praise God, but there was still the threat of fractured fellowship. See, how were the Gentile Christians going to relate to Jewish Christians regarding the law of God and its application? Well, James, the brother of Jesus, he actually suggests a couple of things. And he does so very helpfully in verse 19. It's just that last paragraph there. Look at the small number 19 and following. What does James suggest? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, right from the get-go, God's people, the Jewish people, have been exposed to the law of Moses. So, if suddenly you're saying you don't need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved, it's really going to be hard for them. Even though it's true, you're saved only by what Jesus has done and not by obeying the law of Moses, that was never actually the case anyway, in the first place. They could be mishearing that if you're just saying, ah, forget the law of Moses, I'm not going to do anything at all. I'm just going to continue on with the freedom that I have, saved by God's grace, then that's going to be unhelpful as well. So what's the suggestion? Well, James makes two proposals. Right? Two proposals. Proposal number one don't trouble the Gentiles with a false gospel. Don't trouble the Gentiles with a false gospel. In other words, James 2 formally rejects the idea that Gentile Christians should be circumcised to be saved. He agrees with Peter. He's not at odds with Peter at all. He's saying, you're right, Peter. Jewish Christians should recognize the freedom of Gentile Christians to live a life that is determined by Christ and His Spirit and not by the demands of the law. Don't trouble the Gentiles with a false gospel. Don't trouble them. That's proposal number one. Proposal number two coming out of this is ask the Gentile Christians to use their freedom to lovingly serve the Jews. Use your freedom to lovingly serve the Jews. So avoid all those defiling things associated with the idolatry of other religions. It's a good and godly thing to avoid those things. In fact, those things that he mentioned, sexual immorality, meat associated with strangled animals, blood, were often involved in the idolatry of pagan temple feasts. And as such were an abomination to the Jews. So avoid them. That would be loving God and loving your fellow Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. In fact, it's loving all Jews, even if they're not Christians, so that they can see what matters really matter. So avoid them. Ask the Gentile Christians to use their freedom to lovingly serve the Jews. Now, of course, sexual immorality is wrong anyway. If you're a saved Christian, you will live out a safe life of sexual purity. That's what he's saying. The strangled animals, the blood, well, at one level you could eat those things, it doesn't really matter, but it's really going to be offensive to Jewish people. So don't do it to love them. In fact, This is the essence of what Paul later taught in 1 Corinthians 9 when he wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, for although I am free, see, he's free from the law, from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Do you see? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. What does he mean by that? He means under the law of Moses. He is under the law of Jesus, but he's not under the law of Moses. What's the law of Jesus? It's basically everything under the New Covenant in the New Testament. But he's not under the law of Moses, but he's going to become as one of them for their sake, that I might win those under the law. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you see? He becomes all things to all people for their sake. Now, it's got to have limits. He can't be a sexually immoral person to the sexually immoral person. You know, there's got to be limits. But what's he saying? That where, where those limits are not clear in the New Covenant, then he'll do all things to all people. Like not eat the meat of strangled animals. Like not eat blood in front of Jewish people. Not eat pork in front of Muslim friends. Go kosher in front of Jewish friends. Eat halal. Or is it not halal? Do the right thing my Muslim friends. Paul used his freedom from the law of Moses, to lovingly serve others in the gospel. That's the essence of what is being said here by James. Now, Some time ago, uh, I saw a a dear friend who is an older, single uh, lady now. Uh, In her days as a young Christian, she went to a particular church which gave them the law that they weren't allowed to play cards. They weren't allowed to play cards, right? Now, that was wrong. And as we read the Bible with her, she came to realise that that was wrong. And so she said, Richard, can you teach me how to play cards? Because now my conscience is okay about playing cards. And I thought, okay, okay, I'll teach you how to play cards. And I think, what's the easiest game to teach someone who's just come out of this black and white law of not playing cards or cards being a wrong... What's What's the easiest game to teach? And so I thought... Oh, well, I'll teach you how to play cheat. <laughs> Richard, Richard, Richard. Just think about that. Her conscience was so sensitive to playing cards, now I'm getting at a cheat, you know, in a game of cards. That's not the right thing, right? That's just, just silly. I should have taught her something else instead. It's all about the sensitivity of the conscience with regard to the law and its application. The proposal of James in Jerusalem were to serve Jewish Christians for the sake of the gospel. And the elders and the apostles of the Jerusalem church came together with one accord, so they chose two of their leading men, Judas, called Bar and Silas, to go back to the church at Antioch, where these men had come to to disrupt them in the first place, and deliver their proposals by letter and in person. By letter and in person. Here's the finish of Acts 15. Well, not quite the finish. This is what it says. So when they were sent off, this is Paul and Barnabas and and Silas and Judas. Judas is just not the Judas who was one of the twelve, but another Judas. When they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, right? That's where the church was at the beginning. And having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it,
2: they rejoiced
1: because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they'd spent some time, right, they were there a while, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. You see what's going on? The actions of the Jerusalem church was not only loving, but was felt to be loving. It's not only loving, but felt to be loving. Because they didn't just send a letter They sent people, too, who stayed with them for some time. And please note that when Judas and Silas were sent off, they were sent off in peace by the brothers, which indicates reconciliation between the churches. Now, when Christians disagree, especially Christian leaders disagree, it really is often wrong. Now, often it is wrong. Often it is hypocritical and unloving. Often it feels like what's happening with the debacle of our government at this point in time. More often than not, it has to do with our own sin, our own barriers, our own values, whatever it is that we've grown up with thinking in this way, and and often it's just a clash of thinking, and often it comes out of pride. But some conflict is crucial for the sake of life-giving truth. And running away from this kind of conflict of life-giving truth is cowardly. Words can matter sometimes. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, God guided the debate, God guided the conflict and the decision-making process, protecting the church from error and division, and allowing the respective missions to Jews and Gentiles to flourish separately. But in harmony, praise God for Acts 15. You see, this is a watershed moment. It's so important. Acts 15. Read over it again and again and again, won't you? The conflict at the Jerusalem Council secured the church, our church, from a false gospel. And it secured the church from a fractured fellowship as well. So here is the victory of truth that's spoken in love led to the victory of love. The victory of truth that led to the victory of love through conflict. Because ultimately if the truth of the gospel prevails, so too will the victory of love. Mm -hmm. So please get to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus, won't you? Spend time in the scriptures. Work at understanding it and remembering it and how the bits fit together and how it all points to the, the central message of the Bible, namely that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth because of his death and resurrection. And you're not saved by what you do. You're only saved by what Jesus has done as Lord and Savior. Never assume the gospel of Jesus. Proclaim it. Love it. And guard it for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for a moment. We thank you, dear Father, for the momentous news of Jesus, we pray that you might help us to know it, love it, proclaim it and guard it, for the sake and glory of your Son, and we pray it for his sake. Amen. And someone else is going to lead us in prayer.
2: I'm Beck. I'm a fifth year education student, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Prayer is just talking to God, so if you'd like to join me, just bow your heads as I pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for the free gift of grace that you offer to everyone. We thank you that we can be saved if we trust Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, and thank you that we don't have to do anything to earn his salvation. Lord, we pray for the Explore Christianity course that is taking place on our campus, Thank you for the freedom we have to run this course as a way to help people who are new to Christianity discover and understand the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would use this course to change the lives and hearts of the people who attend so that they might know and love Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Lord, we also pray for the South Pacific Regional Conference that is coming up for Christian student groups. We pray that you will equip those who are training and teaching on the topic of grace. We also pray for good fellowship among those who are attending and that you will give them a clear vision of your, for your work in our region. Lord, we also pray for the Christian students at CSU in Orange. We praise you for the students who came to the evangelist, evangelistic night and who are keen to investigate more about you, and we pray that you will continue to work in the hearts and minds of these students. We also pray for the new committee at CSU as they step into their new roles. Please help them to lead faithfully and to glorify you in all that they do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.